chapter 5. And, you know, the past three weeks we've really been addressing uh, really kind of his admonishment uh, to the church uh, regarding walking in the Spirit uh, so that they wouldn't really succumb to the, the, the cravings of the sinful desire. And, folks, the, the greatest way to just beat walking in the flesh is to walk in the Spirit. You know, it's, it's not some great mystery. The, the way that you, you have victory is to walk in the Spirit rather than in the flesh. And so I love how Paul just begins to put it this way in Galatians 5.16. He said, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You want to know how to overcome sin? Walk in the Spirit. That you will fulfill those things that desire uh, for you. Why? Because then you're, you're walking in a different place uh, where those things do not have power over you. Then he goes on in verses 19 through 21, we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, and he goes into de detail on those things that would constitute uh, following after the desires of the sinful nature. And these were broken down, uh, really kind of what we call four divisions of sins. And the first one was sins that were vi uh, violations of sexual morality. And you remember those two, and you know, I think some people really got some good stuff out of that. Then we were talking about sins dealing with issues of, of the religious nature. But tonight we're going to be looking at sins related to conduct in regards to other people. In other words, how our conduct in regards to sins, how it has an influence on other people's lives. I want to say this kind of as a preface. What you're going to see through these things, especially as we get into the descriptions of those, there, there's some of these attributes of walking in, in, the, in the flesh that, man, they're just so close to walking in the Spirit. And what I mean is it's almost... It's, it's kind of like uh, the adversary. He always provides uh, the semblance of something or, or a counterfeit measure. You know, there, there's, there's certain things that you want to be in the spirit that there is a counterfeit that the enemy tries to bring. That way people don't know. And that's why the enemy presented himself as an angel of, his, of, of light and his, 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 his imps, his demonic spirits, as ministers of light. And so they're portraying themselves as light, but we know that they're, they're not light. And so for us, it's, we've really got to be careful and always look at those things that are, that, are, that are the real deal versus counterfeit deals. And we've talked about this before about, you know, coming from a banking a background, that the way they teach people to identify counterfeit money is by what? It's just only let them handle the real thing. You never let them touch counterfeit money. Because you think, okay, I gotta look, oh, that's a counterfeit bill. Because if you've always got the genuine article in your hand, you don't need to feel the, the, the bad things. You don't need to touch those things that are in air. It's kind of like when people come to the street. I'm trying to think who it was. One of you guys was telling me that somebody had approached you. It, it might have been Kelsey. Uh, I think it was the, the Muslim girl. She said, have you ever studied these other religions? Have you ever studied Islam? And she's like, well, I don't need to. I've got the real deal. And so as long as I've got the real deal, it just puts everything else in, 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 in a pale in comparison to it. And so it's the same thing. If I'm walking in the Spirit, I know what the real deal is because any, anything that deviates from that which is the genuine article immediately sets off an alarm inside of me. So Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. And here's what he says. He says, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very, very clear. And he says sexual immorality, and, and it's kind of encompassed in a couple of things, adultery and fornication that we talked about. Then he said impurity, and that's associated, like I, I mentioned uh, Tying that into the, the man in Mark chapter 5 that had the unclean spirit. Then lustful pleasures, which again, we, we said that that kind of sounds somewhat benign, but it really means outrageous conduct which often incorporates violence. And it says those, uh, those are associated obviously with, with sexual misconduct. Then verse 20, he says idolatry and sorcery, and idolatry being anything that substitutes, or it's a substitution of something false, and worshiping as it's something as if it's something real. 
It is having a desire, but not a true directive. You know, Scripture speaks about having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. It has a, it has a desire, but the directive's wrong. Or we draw nigh with our mouths, but our hearts are far from Him. So we have a desire, there's something it looks like. And that's what idolatry is. It's something that, that's worshipped as the, the genuine article, but in reality, it's not. Then sorcery is coming under the control of an influence that literally will poison your perception so that you can be manipulated into believing a lie. And folks, that's a big one right now. You, you think about the sorcery. We so, so, uh, associate sorcery with, with the pharmacaea, and obviously it is, because you see somebody that's opened themselves up to drugs. And, and you know, some of you, you, you've had a past of drugs. Do you remember some of the demonic stuff that went on in your life, whether the drug was alcohol or something else? Why? Because it, it begins to lower your inhibitions, your ability to function under the power of your own will. And so what it does, it brings an influence. Unfortunately, the only demonic influence of sorcery the adversary uses isn't if you're out hitting the crack pipe or you're popping pills or you're, you're, you're drinking something else. He'll also bring those things in false religion and even in signs and lying wonders. You'll see people that are manipulated. And we mentioned this last week, that these people get caught up in these religious movements and this fanaticism, and they're almost out of control. And, you know, it's the spirit moves, and so the spirit moves, and so it creates this chaotic situation, and the shaking, and the laughing, and the rolling, and the animal barking and things. Folks, it's sorcery. They're coming under the influence of something, and it's feigning something spiritual. But when you begin to, uh, to, to filter it through the Word of God, it just does not hold up to the scrutiny. So tonight we're going to continue in verse 20, and we're going to examine the sins related to conduct in regards to other people. This is big deal stuff right here. Not as though the other things weren't, but it's, it's a really big deal because, you know, those other things, yeah, obviously they, they can affect us on a, on a personal level. But these are things that he says that the works of the flesh... Or, or the, the works of walking in the desires of the flesh are very obvious. And he, and he mentions, he says, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, and verse, chapter verse 21, and he deals with a couple other envy, and the King James adds actually murder in there. It's kind of a compilation of several of those. But I want to look at these things just kind of one by one, starting with that, that hatred, that, that there's certain things that you can point out that tell you if someone is walking in the flesh or has ceased to walk in the spirit. And so when I say hatred, I mean, hatred always conveys some very extreme emotion. You know, you talk about hate crimes. It's not just a crime, it's a hate crime. And so you kill somebody, and that's not a hate crime, but if you kill somebody and you're hateful, I I've never known anybody that murdered somebody that wasn't a hate crime but for that. But, you know, they put this, this, this extra adjective or something on top of it to describe the, the, the level of, of killing. But this hatred literally can be, be a hostility. And it's a word that means, listen to this, it means to hold a grudge or to demonstrate enmity or hostility or to alienate. And so when I think of hate crime, I'm thinking, man, I'm hating people because of their color, their race, or their religion, or something like that. But, he's, but he said that hatred that we have is somebody that would even hold a grudge or to demonstrate any level of hostility or to alienate Someone. Have you ever felt alienated? You know, you know what I mean by feeling alienated? It means that I'm just on the outside looking at I don't have a place. And so you may feel alienated in a, in a relationship, alienated in a church, or alienated on a job, or maybe, but you, you, you've dealt with it on a certain level. And so uh, one of the big issues of Paul's time was really the same issues that we're seeing. It's ripped from the headlines. Was that there was an area of hatred based upon these preconceived prejudices such as race, 
a culture. And this is addressed numerous times in, in, in several of Paul's writings. I'll give you a couple of examples. We'll kind of back up in Galatians uh, chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. And Paul was addressing this church that obviously was dealing with some issues of being alienated or, or hatred or grudge holders. And he said there's no longer Jew or Gentile. There's no longer slave or free, male or female. He said you're all one in Christ Jesus. How many of you guys are, are, are actively doing the, the 90 day Bible challenge? Okay, you're doing that, so you're, you're going through. And if you're reading straight through, chances are you've, you've covered the Genesis and the Exodus and the Leviticus and the Deuteronomies. And so you're looking at all these passages dealing with the law. And so even in that, what are you finding? There's a lot of criteria and there's a lot of opportunities that apply to men that don't apply to women. It's the way God designed it. And so even in regards to the, those that could handle uh, uh, certain duties in regards to worship, those things were really relegated to, 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 the, to the men, in most cases 20 years old and older, that were able to handle some of those instruments and do those type of duties. But something happened when Jesus came in regards to our ability to worship and approach Him, and that was He eliminated that. He didn't eliminate the leadership roles, but He eliminated the, 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 the access roles into His presence for those to do that. So you could see that they were probably dealing with some of those issues. And, and He said, you, you, there, there's neither either slave nor free. And so once many of those people fell into debt, they would have to yield themselves over to, to some type of subservient type of role for a period of time or until a jubilee year they could be uh, released uh, back into their, their, their homeland or whatever it may be. And so you saw a lot of that, those things. Colossians chapter 3.11 mentions it again. He said, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, if you're barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters, and he's the one that lives inside of all of us. So we said in regards to justification, regards to faith, regards to salvation, the playing field has now been leveled. And so my wife can approach the throne of grace and mercy the exact same way that I can. Even though our roles are different in our family, in our church, or whatever else, our, our relationship with God, it, 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 it sees no boundaries based upon those things. And so the battle that we see raging literally all across the United States, what is that, what is it, Chester, is it Chesterfield or Chesterview? What is the, the city of Virginia? It's had the Chesterville, Virginia. You know, you see this issue of these white supremacists and the Nazis and, and the, whatever they're called, the alt-left or whatever those groups are, and there's an open hostility and a hatred towards a person based solely upon something external, cultural, or some type of demographical difference. And so it's a hatred based upon something that is primarily exterior. Why? Because they, they never walk up to somebody and say, hey, listen, let me talk to you just a little bit. What are your values? Let me ask you, how do you treat your wife? Let me ask you, are you faithful on your job? Do you pay your taxes? Are you a guy that adheres to, to, to the rule? They never ask that question. They just immediately identify somebody based upon a, a cultural prejudice. Oh, I can't go there because those are, those are white people over there. You know how mean white people are. They're always killing folks or, or whatever it may be. And so there's this cultural prejudice that exists that brings this hatred. Uh, John 7, 24, you probably know this verse well. And, and, and Jesus said, don't judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And so if there's going to be something that I'm going to look at, if there's going to be a difference that I have with someone, and if, say, for instance, I choose not to have anything to do with Caleb. And I'm not going to have anything to do with Caleb because, I, you know, this, I, I, that's not like the way he looks. You know, what is that doing? That is, that is wrongly judging. But if I say to myself, well, according to 1 Corinthians 5, this guy's walking disorderly, and the Scripture tells me not to have anything to do with him, not even to sit down with him. Well, that's righteous judgment. 
That's not having a prejudice or a bias against him based upon something that he can't control or something that's external. That is a decision, a moral decision that he's made. First Samuel 16, 7, you know this well, uh, when, when uh, the prophet Samuel went into the house of Jesse to anoint the next king over Israel after uh, Saul was rejected. And it said, the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or his height, for I rejected him. I'm talking about Eliab initially, the oldest brother of David. And it says, the Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. It says, people judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Folks, in order to look at the heart, you've got to get close up. You know what I'm saying? You've got to get inside of someone. Hatred happens when you don't get inside of someone. When you look at maybe the watch, but you don't look at the whys. I was talking to a lady on Bourbon Street the other night, and, and she was just talking about why we're out there and all these type of things. And, and she said, oh, this is tough. And I said, well, what happens? I began to share with her what we do on, on, on Thursday nights and ministering to the workers. I said, you can see what they're doing. I said, that's so obvious. I said, I said especially if you go down a, a few blocks, and you'll see many of the strip clubs and the things that are happening down there and the, and, and the girls that are praying themselves. I said, you see the what. I said, but most people, especially in ministry, never stop and ask why. Why did that person think that that was the only thing that they could do? Have they ever looked beyond the surface, beyond the action, or beyond those things that cause us kind of to, to be repulsed initially? It says, why is that person in that type of life? Most people won't do that. But folks, listen, if we're walking in righteousness, we're not going to do that. So there's a, there's a hatred even when people see somebody in that place and they begin to talk about somebody or, or they begin to, uh, to cast dispersions on someone without ever stopping and looking at the heart of an individual. So when this type of hostility exists, what it becomes, it becomes a means whereby people are unrighteously alienated from one another. And it goes even further, though, because it implies holding a grudge or a record of wrongdoing. You know, I, I praise God where Melanie and I grew up. You know, we grew up in our city on the wrong side of town. You know, it, it, but it turned out to be the right side of town. Why? Because when we grew up, uh, our classmates were always of every color. And so I may have had an Asian kid that just came in in the, in the 70s from, from after the Vietnam War, and they began to come into our community. Uh, obviously, I lived in the north side, and so there was obviously uh, African-American kids and, uh, and, and Latino kids of all persuasions. And so that was normal for us. And so for us, we didn't really know any different. You know, when, when we participated in, in, in activities or in athletic teams, it was always just a mixed bag. So we got to avoid that. And it really even helped us further with our children because we saw that. And so we didn't pass on this, this, this prejudicial thing about, you know, those people of whatever persuasion that, that they may have been. And so we got to see that. And so there wasn't an alienation uh, in, in relationships to that. So sometimes it's difficult for us to see that. You know, we've got adopted grandchildren that, that you'll see them in, and obviously they're a shade or two uh, darker than we are or, or whatever else. It, but it doesn't make any difference to us. Why? Because we weren't prejudiced towards that. And so it was never an issue that we had to face. But folks, listen, there's a great alienation that happens with people just because there's a hatred on the outside of something they don't know anything about. But it's interesting, though, when it goes on further, it says, holding a grudge or keeping a record of wrongdoing. Folks, listen, when, when, you, when you keep a record, or if you remember that whole burn me once, shame on me, burn me twice mentality, and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to let it slide this time, but the next time, folks, that's what the scripture calls walking in the flesh. And that's what it calls hatred. Because it's not a forgiveness, it's not a mercy, 
Otherwise, I would allow it to do exactly what Jesus allows my sins to do. But he puts it as far as the east is from the west. He casts it in the sea of forgetfulness, never to remember it again. Do I want God to be a grudge holder over me and say, listen, I'm going to forgive you, but if you do it again, I'm not even going to remember your past sins. Folks, when we do that with other people and we don't have a, a clean slate literally on a daily basis, what we do is we find ourselves slipping into this thing called hatred or hostility. And so 1 Corinthians 13.5, you know this, he says, love keeps no record of wrong. It keeps no record of wrong. So it doesn't even remember what someone done. I was telling somebody the other day, is I, I praise God on, on, on many things I have a real short memory. On other things, my mind's like a steel trap, I remember those things. But on offenses, I really don't got time for that. I, I, re, I really don't even, it, and I said, there's probably people I should be mad at, but I forgot that I should be mad at. I just assume not be. You know what I'm saying? Okay, uh, you, are you mad? Okay, can we, like, does that make you feel better? You can cough me over my head or something? Okay, can we move on now? Why, why are we going to give traction to those type of things? And so when we begin to do that, it causes division, alienation, hostility, and, we, and it cannot continue if we don't hold a record of wrong because it doesn't have a surface to grab a hold of. And so we think of things like this. We might as well tear down the Supreme Court. Don't you think so? We're going to go to Washington, D.C. and just bulldoze the Supreme Court. And, and all of the, all nine justices are in. Why? Because you don't remember what happened back in 1973, don't you? Remember what happened in 73? Roe v. Wade, they legalized abortion back there. So we ought to just tear down the Supreme Court because what happened in 73, which was before many of you guys were even born. So we do that. Uh, well, let's go over to Rome, and we're going to go to the Colosseum. Because I don't know if you guys know what used to happen in the Colosseum. They used to have these Christians that were slaves, and they would either kill them with the gladiators, they'd make them fight, or they'd feed them the lions. And so I don't know about y'all, every time that I see a picture, every time I, I visit Italy, I'm deeply offended by the Colosseum. So I think that thing needs to come down, because listen, I just fall, fall over myself because I'm associating it with what happened with Christianity. Well, I can't do that. Why? Because I don't have any place in that. My, my past only goes back to the last application of his blood. That's where it goes. And so my memories, my grudges, my offenses, any of those things that I would want to have against somebody, every time that I come to Christ on a daily basis, those things are cut off. And so we have to question ourselves. If I'm still holding on and lingering those things, what is it that is causing me to still give that thing a place in my life? Maybe I'll need it one day. Maybe I, I, I need it because it empowers me. Maybe it justifies an attitude or an action or something else. And folks, we can do that. And, and, and I used to remember my mom battled with these things for years and years, just over bitterness. And she would bring something literally out of left field that happened to her 40 or 50 years earlier. And constantly I was telling my mom, Mom, you can't do that. I preached to her, listen, you cannot do that. You know, that is unrighteous. That is demonic. You cannot hold on to those things. Those things will, will bind you up. They will steal your joy. And I said, if you don't repent from those things, those things will disqualify you from heaven. I did that. She would talk about things that happened when she was a little old girl. My mother passed away at 80 years old about what somebody offended her and what somebody did. Folks, listen, we can't do that. Otherwise, it creates this hatred and this variance, uh, uh, this, this variance and this, uh, this hostility inside of our lives. And so what the flesh does, the flesh demands retribution, and when it doesn't get it, it becomes openly hostile. You know what I'm saying? My flesh wants retribution. My flesh wants to feel better about what happened. My flesh 
wants you to hurt as bad as I hurt, wants you to be offended just as offended as I was. And when it doesn't get it, what does it do? It begins to rise up in a hostile way. Have you ever said something like this? That person owes me an apology. Have you ever said that beside me? You ever thought that? You know what I'm saying? I, I don't remember what I said, but I'm, I guarantee I've probably done it. And probably most of all the other works in the flesh, I'm, I'm probably a multiple, uh, uh, multiple offender of most of those things. But you know, you think to yourself, that person owes me an apology. But I think of what Romans 13, 8 says. It says, owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. You know what I owe you? I owe you loving you. You know what you owe me? You owe me loving me. And so if, if, if my obligation morally and walking in the Spirit is to love you and yours is to love me, well, that means that that love is once again has to be consistent back with 1 Corinthians 13, 5, that it doesn't hold a record of wrong. And so if I'm walking in the obligation that I have to other people, if they're operating the obligation to me, it means that it's going to always clear the slate. He said, if you love your, uh, your neighbor, then you will fulfill the requirements of the law. Think about this. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Peter came to Jesus and he said, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? What was the answer? Peter said seven times. Seven times 70. In other words, as much as it takes. But here's what I love about that. There's no mention of the person asking for forgiveness. He didn't say, how many times will I forgive someone that sins against me if they apologize or they ask for forgiveness? Forgiveness is what we do in order to walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. See, the flesh demands an apology. The Spirit gives it even when it's undeserved. Folks, and that's difficult sometimes, isn't it? That person owes me something. Well, that person only owes me to love them, but I'm going to love them first because I'm going to pay my debt. And my debt says, your debt is paid in full. Think about Jesus was in Luke 23, 24. He's hanging on the cross. And he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Father, I, I want to be the one that sets the tone. I want to be the one that demonstrates this. I want to be the one that doesn't demonstrate an open hostility towards my adversaries, but I'm going to do the exact opposite. I'm not going to reward them according to their sins and their transgressions. I'm going to allow my mercy to triumph over my judgment. Because the word says that God judges no man, but he commits all judgment under the hand of his son Jesus. And Jesus came not in the world to judge or condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So his plan and his purpose is not judgment. It's not retribution. It's not that I got you. It's let me see what I can do, how I can pave the way, how I can make it so easy for you to see that there's one truth, there's one way, there's one life, there's one source, and it's me. And all you've got to do is repent and believe. And I'm going to demonstrate my great love for you that while you were yet sinners, before you were even sorry about what you did, I went ahead and took the first step and I demonstrated my love by dying upon the cross of Calvary to bring you back into that place of relationship. Folks, that's what walking in the Spirit from our God who is the Spirit demonstrated. And so that was the first thing that we saw. Then the next thing, work in the flesh after hatred, was variance. Was variance. Another word for variance is discord. And so it's a word eris, and it means quarreling, debating, or having an affection for disputes. Now, have you ever said this? Man, those people just love trouble. Now, I know people that are not happy unless they, they've got some type of conflict with someone. 
Literally, it's like, you know what? Man, can't you just have peace? Can't we just Rodney King it and just all get along for a minute? But I literally know people that you, you see they're nervous and they're just disjointed unless they've got a problem with somebody that they can just talk about all the time. I, I know people like that. And they were some of the most miserable people you'll ever meet in your life. Because there, there's no peace, there's no satisfaction, there's no joy, there's no general relationship with Jesus. Why? Because they tore down those things. And so they're not a disciple of Christ because there's no love for one another. And so we live in a day and age where those things are so prevalent. Everyone's always looking for something to oppose or someone to rebuke or, or something to protest or some argument to make or some argument to defend. And the platform's getting broader and broader all the time. You know, you'll, you'll see it. You'll see it on Facebook. It's like, man, there's this argument after argument. 450 comments on some argument that somebody puts on there, God is good, His mercy endures forever. You don't hear anything, you know. Well, that's nice. I need an argument today. I want to argue, I want to argue over how much water qualifies for a right baptism. I want to argue on, on what you're going to call Jesus. Are you a sacred neighbor? I want to argue on what day of the, of the week that you're going to, uh, you, you, you need to, to worship and call the Sabbath. I need to argue on all these other things. Well, have at it. Folks, I've got to admit, 20 years ago, I felt obligated, obligated to win every single argument that I could find. Feel obligated to it. Now I really don't feel obligated to do any of them, win any of them. And folks, you know what? You confront people, even on the streets many times. I talk to people. They'll come up. And as soon as they get into some outlandish something, I'll say, listen, I'm done talking to you. I thought you were supposed to win me the Lord. I said, no, I'm not here for you. I'm here for the harvest that's white and ripe. Well, one, of the, one of my other team here, they may be for you. I'm, I'm just not here. And I'll just act in there. And they're like, well, you can't do that. I said, wait, I am. I'm not, I'm not here to argue with you. If you want to hear what i got to say, I'll, I'll sure tell you what i got to say. But honestly, when I got in my car and I drove out here and I stood underneath this cross, I did not come out here to hear what you had to say. I didn't. I, I don't want that to offend you or anything else. But you know what? There's 10 or 12 other people that might have came out here for that. But listen, I'm not here to argue with you. I'm not out here to make my case or to prove a point. I'm here to tell you what Jesus did upon the cross of Calvary. If you're interested in hearing that, I can tell you how to get saved. If you're not, man, be safe and have a good night or find somebody else to talk to and you know, I said, they're almost repulsed. What's wrong with this guy? Well, I just, just ain't got the time for it. I don't have the desire for it. Why? Because while I'm standing there uh, trying to win some argument that that person don't, doesn't even want to concede, I don't know who's going to walk by me on their way to hell, and I may have been able to rescue them. Titus 3, 9 through 11 says, don't get involved. Titus 3, 9 through 11. Do not get involved in foolish discussions about spiritual pedigrees or in quarrels and fights about obedience to Jewish law. These things are useless. They are a waste of time. If people are causing divisions among you, give a first and second warning. After that, have nothing more to do with them. For people like that have turned away from the truth and their own sins condemn them. Folks, listen. That's why I told you some of those things are so close to the truth. You see what I'm saying? Because you can say to yourself, well, what about apologetics? Well, folks, there's, there's a difference between apologetics and... And shifting that over to the degree of I want to be right. Folks, I've had people many times, you've heard me say this, they come and say, listen, I would become a Christian, but there's five questions that no preacher's ever been able to ask me. Answer for me. And I'll say, I'd like to take a shot at the, at the quiz. Then they'll ask these five questions. And you know what? It's never hard questions. It's really not. You know, they may not like the answer, but the question's really not difficult. And I, I've seen, I've had that happen verbatim two or three times that I, that I, could, that I could tell you. And I'll answer the question. They'll look at me and say, and I'll say got any more? They're like, wow, you answered all the questions. Well, you ready to come to the Lord? Well, no, not right now. So, so it really wasn't a question. It had nothing to do with it. 
You were just looking for a quarrel. And now you don't have one because somebody actually answered the question. Folks, listen, we're not going to out-quarrel or out-argue somebody into the kingdom of God. We're just not going to be able to do it. Why? Because no one can call Christ Lord except the Spirit draw them. And the Spirit's not going to draw them if I'm walking in the flesh. But if I'm walking in the Spirit and I'm not finding myself with a spirit of variance, trying to be right, and you've heard me say this, it's, it's, there's a difference between being right and being righteous. The wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. It doesn't. And so I tell these guys around here, you've heard me say it, when you go to the streets, preach a message you can preach anywhere. You can preach the same message off that box that you preach in a nursing home. Period. It's all sin issues. I, I don't have to preach about purpose. I don't have to preach about hate. I don't have to preach those things. I can just get up there and let the Word of God fly and just quote, quote from the, 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 the Word of God. And you know what? It brings a conviction to people's lives. It, it really does. Why? Because I'm not there talking about these, these variables. I'm talking about the very one that's come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so, on the streets, we see it. We have foolish questions. We can dismiss those things. Um, the other night, Andrew uh, was talking to a girl for, for a significant amount of time. I believe it was on fr uh, Friday, Friday night. And uh, afterwards, she asked if she could speak to the pastor. Well, she came up to me. And, and I, I kind of hinted at where she was coming from just by, by her appearance. And uh, come to find out, she was a lesbian who had been married to another woman for four or five years. Anyway, we, and, and so she didn't just come out and say that because it's obvious that she eventually came out and said that. But I knew where she was going, so she was... She was hoping in the conversation that the wheel would fall off that wagon. But, you know, I was as, as, as wise as a serpent and as harmless as a dove in that situation. So I never allowed her to bait me into that. Because she would say a few things like, yeah, you know, I'm just here. And, you know, my wife is such a... And she'd kind of say it like, like she's saying ham sandwich or something. You know, kind of passing it by real quick. And I just acted like she never said it. And, you know, just kept talking to her and, and talking to her about the word and why we do what we do and why it's so important. And, and gave her testimonies of changed lives and people we've rescued off the streets, and, and different things of that nature, and why we do what we do in that environment. And, and I told her, listen, we, we may not do that in a neighborhood. We, we certainly don't do it like this under the bus stop at, uh, early in the morning on Sunday. I mean, there's where we are, I said, so this is a very aggressive environment, so we have a very aggressive approach. And so it's different everywhere you go. And I said, but look around. And everybody, I said, as, as much as you think that this is a, a difficult way or the wrong way to do it, I said, look, everyone's in a conversation. I said, including you. I said, had we have been passive, you'd have never stopped and had these questions for someone. And so we ended up in the conversation, and I finally told her, I said, listen, you know from where I stand, and her father happened to be some type of minister in the, the AME church, and, and, and they had an issue with, with her lifestyle, but, you know, that was their daughter, she said. And I said, you know that I don't agree with your lifestyle. You know that I, I believe that's sin. I said, but have you sensed any hostility from me towards you? I said, because I don't sense any towards you from you towards me. And she said, no, not at all. And she said, because I just associated you with other people that I've seen doing this in other places. And she said, so I wanted to stop, good idea, and find out what you were really about. I'll give her a brownie point for that one because most people wouldn't take the time to do that. But at least she stopped and stayed there. I probably talked to her for 45 minutes or an hour myself after she talked to Andrew for half an hour. But she found out that there wasn't a hostility, there wasn't a debate. There was just an open truth. And I told her, I said, listen, I don't agree with your lifestyle. I think there's some eternal consequences to the decisions that you're making. I said, but I want to tell you something. I don't hate you. I don't have any hatred towards you. I don't feel any hostility towards you. I love you, and, and I believe that, that God wants to do something miraculous in your life. I said, now what you do with that, 
I said, you know what, you'll leave here and that'll be able to see what I hope. I hope just you stopping and spending the time that you did, I hope that you can think about things in a little bit different light than maybe you have in the past. And she thanked me for the time and she went on about her business. And so you don't have to enter into that debate or this one-upsmanship or, or have this affection uh, for types of disputes. You don't have to do those things in order to get your point across. I would rather not have any conflict when I preach the gospel. I would rather everyone just repent on the spot. I know that's not reality, but that's what I would like. Not just looking for conflict. The third thing he gave was emulations. How many of you have used the word emulation in a, in a sentence? Who's the last time you used that? You know, I was just thinking the other day. You might use that where you work. <laughs> or something that sounds like emulations. But that word emulations, another word for it is jealousies. Jealousies. Now, it's the word zealous, which, again, there's that being zealous. And so it's a derivative of that same word. How many of you want to be zealous for the gospel? But you don't want to be walking in emulations or jealousy towards that. That's what I'm saying. You've got to be real careful because some of those attributes will, will try to masquerade themselves as something righteous. But look what it says. It means striving to excel at the expense of someone else. That's what emulations are. I'm striving to excel at someone else's expense. In other words, you've heard people say, listen, man, they're, they're, they're climbing the ladder on the backs of other people. Or they don't care who gets in their way. Or they'll walk over anybody that gets in their path. And so, what this is, is this kind of related to some of you guys. It's kind of like taking trash talk to a whole new level. And it goes beyond just some friendly rivalry into something that's an uncurved and, and unscrupulous attack upon another person or their accomplishments in order to bolster oneself. So it's like somebody coming to you and saying, hey, you know what? You say, hey, where did you, where did you and uh, uh, James go Saturday? Oh, you went to play disc golf. Man, you're sorry. Dude, listen, I'm the best disc golfer ever. You, man, you stink. I don't even know why you would go. I'm the disc golfer. Man, I'm Mr. Hole-in-One, is what they call me. I, you got to get rid of yourself. You're sorry. Well, what have I done? I've I, I brought emulations. A, I've never even seen the guy play disc golf. And why can't he be good, too? You see what I'm saying? So I'm propping myself up, and I'm saying, you're no good in order to, to do what? Make myself look better? Well, he's not measuring himself against me. He don't go out there. He's not saying, listen, I've got to be better than somebody else that's not even on the course. And that's what jealousies and emulations do. It's always tearing somebody else down in order to, to provide yourself a vehicle or a platform to do better. And, and it's like never giving somebody else their props because doing so might force you to acknowledge their superior, superiority over you in another area. That's what it is. It's not, it's not saying, hey, attaboy, man, you really did a good job. Man, you're, you're fantastic at that. You know, I say this all the time, and I, and I totally mean it. You know, I like to street preach. I do. It, it, but that's some of you guys are just really good. I mean, really. I mean, I steal some of your material, probably just like you may have stole a little bit of mine. And I'm thinking to myself, man, that's just some good, some good stuff. And I'm thinking especially with your, many of you guys' relative inexperience at it in comparison to how old I am and how long I've been at it. I'm thinking, man, God is really blessing and doing this. I remember when we were in uh, Daytona last year, and uh, Andrea and, and, and Kim were preaching. Man, Mel and I was back there. We was like, man, the sisters are just killing it. Man, we, we almost backslid just to get saved. I mean, yeah, they did good. And you know what? Telling them how great they did and blessed, it did not take anything away from us. We didn't say, well, since they're doing so good, man, that means that we're just useless and whatever else. But see, 
what the emulations does, it would never say that. It said, oh, that was okay. That was all right. But you know what? You really fouled up right here. You really messed up right here. That really wasn't any good. Because, folks, that's not even constructive criticism. Many times when, when some of the guys are, are preaching or whatever else, after they're done, I'll pull them off to the side. And I'll say, hey, let me tell you something that you said that's going to help you. Let me tell you something that's going to be advantageous for you. You've got a 90-second window here, and you just told a story that took you at least four or five minutes. And what happened is they only got this much of it and it made no sense. You, what you need to do is you need to concentrate on getting more word out there because we're saved by grace through faith. And how can they hear without a preacher? Get word out there. Hold as much Bible as you can. If you can't memorize it, open your Bible up. There's nothing wrong with reading it. Now, see, that's, that's positive reinforcement. That's not saying you're sorry, you're terrible, don't do it anymore. It's saying, hey, I appreciate your zeal. I appreciate your, your willingness, your boldness, your enthusiasm. Hey, let's make that just a little bit more effective for you. Rather than saying, listen, man, you're terrible. Just sit down. Let me show you how it's done. Folks, we just can't do that. There, there's, there's no advantageous thing that comes and advances the kingdom. We've got to be people that are reproducing and sustaining something for another generation. And Philippians 2.3 says this. It says, let nothing be done through strife or through vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other people better than themselves. Let them esteem other people better than themselves. I've said this for years. We need to do such a good job of, of, of raising other people up to do the work of the ministry that other people forget that we even did it before. They really do. That's what we need to do. We need to be so effective in discipling other people and empowering them to do the work that no one ever knows that we used to do their job. See, that's what discipleship looks like. Greater works will you do than I've done because I go to be with the Father. And they're going to see it. And you know what? Jesus isn't jealous of his children. He says, let your light shine before men. Your good works shine before men. That they might see them and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Why? Because we're his workmanship. We're his workmanship. And when his workmanship gets put to work, our Heavenly Father is glorified as long as our hearts are in the right place. The next thing was wrath. Wrath or an outburst of anger. It's the thumos, T-H-U-M-O-S, if you're writing down these great little words. Wrath is wrath or an outburst of anger. This is losing your temper. It's getting heated. It's, it's getting in an angry situation when things don't go the right way. Folks, the thing about walking in wrath and that being the, the, the evidence of not walking in spirit, this is the opposite of self-control or being able to keep your cool. That's what it is. Wrath is not being able to keep your cool. Not being able to, to, stand, to stand in the fire and be able to overcome. And so we've got to be people that in the midst of situations that we're able to keep our cool. Uh, back a few years ago when we were ministering in Daytona Beach, we were out on the streets one night preaching. And I'm preaching right in front of a club that we preached in week after week. And as I'm preaching, a guy comes up to me, a young man, and pulls a knife on me and is threatening to stab me. Really, we remember this. We were out there that night. Anyway, uh, obviously I didn't get stabbed that night, and he, he backed away. And I told the police officer, listen, uh, this guy attacked me, and he, he tried to stab me with a knife. And so uh, they ended up arresting him that night. Well, a couple weeks later, I get a call, and it's from the, the detective, the investigator, whatever else in this case. And I went in, and I sat down with this lady, the detective, and she said, um, she said, I'm going over this thing. She said, listen, I don't know if you knew this or not, but that young man is in the police academy. 
She said, and if you don't drop the charges, he will never be able to be a law enforcement officer. And I said, really? I said, good. I said, that's the last thing we need is another hothead with a gun hooked to the side of a badge that, that validates their actions. And she's like, but he never will be able to do that again. He, he won't be able to. I said, great. He needs to find something else to do because he's a hothead. And she said, and I had it all on video. She said, I looked at the video. She said, you didn't like seeing that you were afraid or she didn't, he, you didn't seem like you were panicking. Are you, are you sure that he, he really was threatening you? And I said, ma'am, let me ask you a question. How long have you been an officer? She said, what did she tell me? I said, so when you find yourself in conflict, do you freak out? She said, no. I said, does that mean there's no conflict? She said, well, no, but I have to do that because I'm responsible for other people. I said, bingo, me too. I said, I felt threatened. I felt like I was in peril. I said, but the second that I demonstrate that, I will cause a panic to the people that are following me. I've got to be calm. I've got to be resilient under fire. Yeah, I was definitely concerned with what the guy was doing, but I was not going to demonstrate that whatsoever. I said, but that does not diminish the threat that that young man put upon my life and possibly other people as well. And so, obviously, they filed whatever the charge was against him, and he was dismissed from the police academy. But folks, listen, we can have freedom, we can have victory, we can have stability even in the midst of those things. We don't have to lose our cool and, and to freak out and to demonstrate anger. And so you, you hear people having anger issues, and this is exactly what it's talking about. If the work of the flesh is in full swing in a person's life. Here's what's interesting about that. There's a form of this word that's translated as rage on wrath. It, it literally means temporary insanity. That's what it means, wrath. Temporary insanity. This is when the flesh takes over and a person just loses it. You heard somebody say, man, I, I just lost it. I just went crazy. Well, folks, that's what he's talking about there. Where you just, you're out of your mind. Well, legally, they, they talk about crimes of passion. You ever heard that before? Yeah, I saw, I saw red. I just didn't know what to do. And I couldn't control myself. Folks, I praise God that I've never been there. I, I remember 30, nearly 30, 29 years ago was the last time that I probably lost my temper. My, my wife knows exactly the occasion that it was. Fortunately, it was long before I was a pastor and uh, our, our son was little and, and, and I lost my temper on somebody. I lost my temper, but I didn't lose my salvation. I never, I never cussed him. I never did that. But I definitely put the fear of God into this individual. And when they said, told their, their daughter, call the police, call the police. I said, well, you better call an ambulance. That's what you're going to do. But, uh, you know, I was probably more bark than bite. But that was it. But, you know, I, I didn't see red. I didn't do something that I had to live to regret afterwards. That's what wrath is. The next thing was a strife. Another word for strife here. And it's, it's the, 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 the word demonstrates is selfish ambition. And it literally means, and get this, the strenuous endeavor to equal or pay back any wrongs committed against me. In other words, it's to demand some type of recompense or vengeance against somebody that's got something on me. Deuteronomy 32-35 says, God speaking, he said, to me belong to vengeance and recompense. It's repeated the same thing that we hear in Hebrews 10.40. That vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And so we have strife. What we want to do is we want to take the role that God has only for himself, and we want to be the person that exacts that type of punishment. So this is too common in our, in our culture. It's commonplace because what we do is we want to be compensated for things that have been done to us or things that have been done, period, even before we're born. You notice that? 
And so there's this vengeance that's going on. And folks, listen, we live in the land of vengeance. And you're seeing that. And so all of these things are wanting to do, well, that represents something else. Folks, listen, if it predates uh, January of 1967, it had very little to do with Troy Bond because I didn't even pop out until January of 1967. And so I'm not going to argue with what happened somewhere else in my, my heritage or whatever else. Why? Because, listen, I do not have any connection. I don't have any responsibility because I did not make any decisions associated with those things. So don't hold me accountable to what somebody did even before I was birthed out. You hear what I'm saying? But there's this whole attitude of vengeance that's, that's been so prevalent. So there can never be unity where there is strife. And so even as a nation, we're saying we've got to have unity. Well, there's too much strife to have unity. So I can't say unity on one hand and demand vengeance or recompense on the other. I can't say I want, I want unity with you, but I'm not going to have unity with you unless you allow me to have vengeance on you first. That's why this nation is in the uproar and calamity it is. Because what happens, on all sides, people are walking in the flesh expecting God to do something spiritually. And so the fulfillment of strife will never satisfy the appetite of the flesh to be recompensed or paid back because it will never, ever, ever be enough. It will never be enough. And so I think about the things that are happening now in 2017, all this, this unrest, all this racial inequality, all these things. Well, 15 years ago, I wasn't hearing a lot of this. I, I really wasn't. There was, there was a little bit of this stuff going on. Well, go back another five, and maybe it was, and some of the, the, the Los Angeles race riots and things that happened with, with, with some police officer situation there and, and all the Rodney King and the Reginald Denny stuff that happened out in Los Angeles. But go back another 10. It was all quiet on the Western Front. You, you see what I'm saying? It's never satisfied. Somebody's always going to find somebody that they're unhappy with. Why? Because vengeance and recompense are never satisfied in the flesh. Look what's happening over the Confederate monuments. You know, and, and you think about it, most of those things were erected, you know, when, during the Jim Crow era. All this stuff under, under Reconstruction following the Civil War, and all these uh, monuments were erected just to say, yeah, we may have lost, but we were going to show your face. All that stuff was erected then. I mean, I could care less about any of the monuments. You know why? Because all the monuments, all the football stadiums, uh, all the shopping malls, all the movies, all that stuff's going to come down one day anyway. It's all going to melt with fervent heat, so melt it now or melt it later, it's coming down. Why? Because everything that can be shaken, the scripture says, is going to be shaken. And so it's either going to be shaken by an angry mob, or it's going to be shaken by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So get ready to shake, baby, because it's all, all coming down. The next thing that he mentioned was seditions. The word sedition literally means a division or divide. It's, it's real similar to strife in that it's built upon the notion of self-interest. Uh, and it really just, it's the absence of altruism. You know what altruism is. It's just living your life for someone else's benefit. How is my life benefiting someone else? Um, Philippians 2, 1 through 4 says this. It says, is there any encouragement for belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and are your hearts compassionate? Then he said, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and one purpose. That's what's going to make him happy. So don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Think of ourselves as better than we, uh, than we need to. Don't look out for your own interest, but make an interest in other people too. So we've got to ask ourselves the questions unless we're following suspicions. How are my actions influencing other people? What are the consequences of my actions? Or how, how's my attitude sometimes? We really have to have actions 
Pastor attitude. If you ever went into a place and there was somebody that said the stink face and it just messes everybody else up, I walked into that person, there they are again. And so everybody's like walking on pins and needles because, oh, there that person is again. That person's always the, they're the, they're the buzzkill in any environment. They're never satisfied. They're never happy. You've been around those environments? What do you want to do? You either want to throw them out the window or you want to go somewhere else. You, you do. Why? Because it's like, what is it this time? Kids, man, don't you ever have any joy? Are you always looking for something that's going to do? How's your attitude? Or how are my decisions affecting other people? What am I doing to, to, that's going to be consequential to affect other people? Folks, that's what seditions are. It's not having any uh, uh, any care or concern with what, what my attitude, my actions, my uh, my 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 uh, my uh, uh, demeanor, any of those things that, that would represent me, how they're going to affect other people. Or consider, or consider what's going to be the effect of those things. Think about Acts 2, 1 through 4. It says, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one accord in one place. Okay? It says, suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were all sitting. And there appeared on their cloven tongues like fire, and set up on each them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit of God gave them utterance. Folks, prior to this, Man, there was a lot of seditions going on. You know a guy named Judas that used to walk with him? Kind of a sedition, kind of an issue of, 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 of division. Uh, even Peter. I mean, think about some of the stunts that that, that guy pulled. I mean, at the very end, you know, right before Jesus was crucified when he went to the cross, he was denying him, so there was some contention. Uh, even in relationship, you think James and John. Now, these guys even had their mom going and said, hey, listen, can my boy sit on one side or the other? Why didn't they say, can somebody else do that? And so you saw all these divisions jockeying for business. So those things existed prior to that. But once they waited out that 10 days, he said, go and tarry in Jerusalem, that the promise of the Father could come. And so for 10 days, they waited until the day of Pentecost. And what happened? They were the same. They were together. They were this word, two words. They were homos autos. And so they were in one place with one mind. The same thing, doing the same thing with the same heart. It was the same attitude. And so, in the last days, you're going to have people that aren't going to have the same heart and the same attitude. They're not going to have the same mind and in the same place. There's going to be these contentions and these divisions. So, if we're going to have the homos atos, we've got to be in agreement. That's, that's the whole Amos 3.3. 3. Can two walk together except they be in agreement? There's got to be an agreement. We've got to be traveling the same path and be thinking in the same way. Otherwise, it creates... That's addition. Heresies is the next one, but I'm going to wait till next week because I'm going to, I'll probably spend the whole, uh, the whole hour talking on that. So I'm going to jump down to envy real quick. Envy literally means ill will. Ill will. Folks, envy is, is really disturbing. It's a disturbing characteristic because what it implies and what it brings into the situation. I want you to listen to the, the, the basic definition of that word envy in the Greek. And he uses this word instead. It says the miserable trait of being glad when someone experiences misfortune or pain, and convey and it's conveying displeasure at another person's good, without longing to raise oneself to the level of him who he envies, but only to depress the envy to his own level. I want to say that again in kind of layman's term. In other words, when when somebody else fails, you rejoice. That's what envy does. When somebody else succeeds, you say, well, listen, they must have cheated. They, they must have been dishonest. 
That's what envy does. And envy doesn't say, I'm, I'm sad that Emerson achieved something. Envy says, I want you to be as miserable as I am. It's, it's not saying that, uh, uh, unfortunately, I couldn't achieve that. It's saying that I'm never going to put the work, the time, and the dedication into achieving that. But the only way that I can justify things is I want to drag you back down to where I am. Well, think about how miserable that is. It's like, listen, I don't want you to exceed, not because you're getting ahead of me. I don't want you to exceed because then that'll put me on the spot that maybe I'll have to get up and do something. Folks, you see that, not, not just, you see that in the business world, but you also see it in the church. And so you go preach the gospel, for instance. You know, we, we got this thing called Bourbon Street. We go out and preach on this street. Folks, listen, you've heard me say many times that it's not the method, but it's the message that's sacred. Our, our method just happens to be in a place like that. But folks, you can't discount the impact of that. Say, ah, you know what, that's not that big a deal, or whatever else. It's because you don't have that street. Well, you've got some street, or you've got a, you've got a Walmart, or you've got a Denny's, or whatever it is. And so don't discount what I do uh, on a street like that, just because maybe it's a high-profile environment with a lot more people. And just to say, well, listen, that's not doing any good. Just because you're not willing to get up and do something wherever you're at. Folks, that's what envy does. Envy never wants to rejoice and say, man, God's doing an impact here. Thank you so much. That's really motivated me. And I, I can go preach the gospel wherever I'm at. And so it's despising your success, yet I'm not willing to pay the price necessary to achieve those same successes on my own. So anytime that I see someone fail or, or falter on any level, I rejoice when they face difficulty. And so it's looking, it's like, Man, I want to find some dirt on somebody because, man, they, they, they can't be as, 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 as on the level as they seem. You guys remember George. George used to always come up to me and say, I'm, I'm checking you out. I'm, I'm going to find some dirt on you. I'm, I'm looking. I said, dude, I'm an open book. I said, you want to know anything about me? I said, listen, I know two, two or three verses. You can come. If you want to come to our church, you're welcome to come. Matter of fact, George, if you want to come in and say something, man, I'll, I'll give you the microphone. You can say something. I ain't going to do that. So why aren't you? Are you afraid of me, George? And then actually, that was the night that things broke on that and just called him out on his envy. You know, because George saw me on that place. He, he saw the, the pictures of my children. He saw my children preaching the gospel with me. And here he is, it's just this miserable man working in management at this place with nothing to show for, no friends, no real family. And so that was envy. I've got to see if I can find something to knock this guy on. That way I feel better about my misery. Folks, think about how deplorable that is. And so it differs in je jealousy that it doesn't desire what somebody else had. It just, just doesn't want them to have or experience anything that might elevate, uh, be elevated in any way. And so it's that classic misery loves company mentality. And it just wants everybody else to be miserable uh, uh, because they never want to do anything of substance that's going to require anything out of them as well. So next week, we'll finish this section up on the, the attitudes and things that we do to affect other people with heresies. Father, we just thank you for your word, Lord God. Father, we want to walk in the Spirit, Lord God. Father, we want to be careful, Lord God, to, to, to really measure our hearts and our attitudes, Lord God, and consider all of these things, Lord God, that, that, that your servant, the Apostle Paul, said. He said, the works of the flesh are evident, and they're these. He said, that those that practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, Father, we say, search us, Lord God. Check our hearts. Check our attitudes, Lord God. We don't want to be guilty, Lord God, of, of, of any, any, Lord God, this drop of any scintilla, Lord God, of these things, Lord God. Father, we want to be pure in our heart and our motivation and our actions, Lord God, and walk in the Spirit, Lord God. So we ask for your strength to do that. Father, we just pray for our 